and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We've got an exciting show today because the author of the seminal book, Vagabonding, is here as my guest. He is Rolf Potts. Hey, Rolf, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Pauline, it's good to talk to you. So where am I talking to you from? I'm from my home base uh, when I'm not traveling, and I'm traveling a lot less now that we're in the pandemic era. It's Kansas, north central Kansas. I can look out the window and see my wife walking my mini horse. So, <laughs> You know, you sent me a picture of that mini horse, and I was, I'll get to introducing you more directly, but can you tell our listeners why there are mini horses? I thought this was so fascinating. Yeah, I didn't really know much about them until I fell in love with my wife and realized that she was in love with mini horses, and now we got her one. They were actually bred in Scotland to work in mines, um, and which is probably not very glamorous work, but now they in North America, they're usually just there to be cute. They, they also, you can take your mini horse to like an old folks home or a school, and they're just very small, friendly creatures, and they're a lot of fun. I would never have pictured you, Rolf, with a mini horse and with, and with a wife, uh, right. because you are the vagabonding guy. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about, about that book and, and your history and writing it? Yeah, well, vagabonding is about taking time off from your normal life to travel the world in earnest. It's not just a vacation. It's this conscious decision to travel. Maybe you could call it a dream trip, but just to travel in earnest, to go slow and take an amount of time that's longer than your normal vacation, it could be six weeks, it could be two years, oftentimes it's one year, to travel and go slow and save money and really interact with local cultures and and have a different experience of the world. And it's also about seeing time as your truest form of wealth. I think sometimes we put off our dream trips and we don't realize that time is what we have to work with and, and um, we should spend our money in a way that makes our time interesting. Uh, and so I wrote that book. It's Go ahead. I was going to ask you how you discovered that. I mean, it's that's a big revelation to have, and you had it pretty young. Uh, how did you how did you get to that realization? Well, I think it's it's trial and error, but it's also desperation. You know, I'm I've come full circle to Kansas, but my grandfather was a Kansas farmer, and he was sort of a, a perfect example of this idea that if you work hard, you know, then you can become a successful person. And he was a good farmer, but by the time he was going to retire and have all this free time, uh, ostensibly to travel or do whatever with his woman he loved, uh, my grandmother got Alzheimer's disease and he couldn't oh, really travel. Right. And so I thought, wow, if you follow the rules in life, it doesn't always reward you with this time to really enjoy not having to work so much. So sure. when, when I was young, I thought, well, I'm going to travel the world and scratch that travel itch and I'll never have to travel again. And then I can become a workaholic. Well, <laughs> I realized through travel, um, I, it was actually van life before hashtag van life. I just kitted out a van and, and traveled, not realizing it would become a movement 15 years huh. later. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I just, I realized that travel was, was easier and safer and cheaper and just more enjoyable than, than, I, than I realized it could be. It didn't need to be this albatross that I could put off to someday, that it's something I could sort of make work in a dynamic relationship with my own life. So then... I was out of money. I moved to, to, to Asia and taught English for a while and saved money and started traveling the world. And after two years of traveling the world, um, I wrote the book Vagabonding. Gosh, that's been almost 20 years now. Wow. Wow. I can't believe it's been 20 years. And 
you know, there, there are so many people with itchy feet, even in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, I don't know if it's a smart idea to be traveling right at this very moment, but if people want to travel in the near future, you give advice and vagabonding about how to set yourself up to be able to travel. Uh, and, you know, you wrote vagabonding before there were influencers. I think a lot of people think that setting yourself up to travel means finding a, a sugar daddy corporation to send you around to take pictures of yourself in a swimsuit. I hope that's not too cynical. Uh, <laughs> but you had a different way of approaching this, right? Yeah, well, I think it's just a matter, well, for me personally, it was a matter of saving money, finding parts of the world or parts of the United States where it was a little bit cheaper to travel. Sure. Um, and then just making it a part of your life. And one thing that can apply to the pandemic is that once you've decided to take that trip, it sort of becomes real. Even if it's not going to happen in two years, you can you can start saving money and you can start spending less money on your daily coffee habit and more money into your into your trip funds and sort of start looking at things. And, you know, influencers have are sort of their own brand of travel media now. This sure, idea sure. That you, you need to be sponsored by Pepsi Cola, I guess, to travel. But it's just it's just been a matter, a matter of saving the money you have. And the advantage of not being an influencer is that you don't have to take pictures of yourself all the time. Right. <laughs> you can just enjoy yourself in a very private way, which is, to my mind, is just so much more rewarding than having to get the lighting right and um, sending out to your followers. Nothing against influencers, but you don't have to be one to travel. Right, right. Absolutely. So you save up. I think a lot of people, partially because of this pandemic, might be worried about medical care. If they take off for a long period of time, how will they be able to tend to their health should they get sick? Well, um, I haven't traveled internationally enough with the pandemic to speak specifically to pandemic issues, but the world is right. full of people and, and people need medical care anywhere in the world. In fact, when I first started traveling, I was so surprised that in India, I could go to the pharmacist and explain how I felt. And the pharmacist would say, oh, well, maybe you need this medicine, you know, that, that it's just it's just simpler in some ways. Now, I don't want to give um, erroneous medical advice, but sure. um, there's smart people around all over the world. And in the United States, we've sort of been inculcated into thinking that that healthcare is this really complicated and expensive thing when in fact... There's pharmacies and doctors and hospitals and um, smart people who can help you almost everywhere in the world. And so, um, yeah, when you, in fact, some of the best healthcare I've had was in Thailand, you know, or mm. India, you know, that, that I, I've been to, um, to some really uh, great uh, medical facilities. Like I, I got an all day physical once in Thailand for about $200. Um, wow. It was nice. They, they tested everything in my body and, it was a great way to go. In fact, there's a thing called, med I'm not an expert in it, but it's medical tourism. Sure. Go to part of the world where um, the cost of living is cheaper and get those tests done in a place where it doesn't cost as much. Right. So yeah, I was going to bring that up. I mean, not only are the tests cheaper because people, I hate to say it, but because people make less money in those places, often hospitals have the funds to hire more people. So you go into the hospital in Thailand, to give that example again, and the level of cleanliness might be higher than it is here in the United States, simply because there are more people working at that hospital and keeping it clean and tending to the patients and doing all the tasks that we are often stretched thin with here. 
Yeah, and my doctor in uh, in uh, Thailand was trained in Utah, actually. So wow, he had, he'd had first world medical training, um, and the the actually the is Brumengard Hospital in Bangkok. Um, it's it's a terrific facility, and so I think sometimes when we're sitting at home, we assume that facilities on the other side of the world or in in countries that are not seen as well as wealthy as the United States will not be as good. When in fact. The world is full of humans, and humans have very simple uh, health needs, and most of, and some of them, as you say, are, are, are attended to in a very efficient and clean and, and surprisingly um, more competent than our own culture manner, um, which is yeah. nice. Nice peace of mind as a traveler. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think of the others? So you said that that we're inculcated into this belief that we could be in trouble in terms of medical care if we go elsewhere. What do you think are the other common misconceptions that Americans have before they hit the road? Well, I think a a, a big one over the years has been safety as well. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, people, you know, we, we don't, we don't, read newspapers, even less now websites that say, Hey, it's great on the, in this country. You know, it's a man, it's a dog uh, or a man bites dog news world, you know, that we always hear the bad news. Um, right. And so it can feel sometimes like it's more dangerous to other parts of the world, but really statistically, and, and I'm sure you know this, um, you know, from your own experience in travel, that those headline grabbing events, it, it, it's not violent crime and, and, and terrorism that are dangerous to travelers. It's, not putting on your helmet when you rent a motorcycle. It's not reading the health warnings and mm. you know following the protocols in a time like COVID. Um, it's actually uh, swimming in places where you're not supposed to swim can be dangerous. Those are the things. Right. Or like getting a sunburn. <laughs> that, <that's> like, <laughs> st- statistically, the dangers that happen to travelers are the same. You know, walking drunk in a bad neighborhood in the middle of the night, something you wouldn't do at home, but maybe for some reason you would do it by accident. Common sense things really can make you safer in the health sense and, and in the crime sense um, when you're a traveler um, and yeah. just following those rules. Yeah, absolutely. Well, back when I was giving speeches uh, at travel shows, and hopefully I'll be doing it again this spring, knock wood, uh, they're going to happen. Uh, Omicron seems to have upended a lot of plans, but but it may be peaking. Mm. We'll see. We'll see. And I would always give a list of countries and I would show the list and it included Ireland and Jamaica. And I can't remember the others on the list right now. And I'd ask the audience, what do people think these countries have in common? And what they had in common was they all currently had warnings against the dangers of the United States for Mm. their citizens. Uh, you know, people in Jamaica, I think it was, uh, that, that there was racism in our country and that as a black person of color, you might be treated poorly in the U.S. Other, other folks were warning, uh, their citizens uh, about our, our gun violence. So, uh, that always brought, brought the audience up short. They never really thought of how America is perceived. Um, so you will, let me say that I've always thought of you, Rolf, as kind of a rolling stone. You always were single. You always were going off, having incredible adventures. Let me just interject. How many how many countries have you visited? Do you know? Well, I'm, I'm not a, a country counter. And sometimes the like the question of <laughs> what what is a country? You know, you go to yeah, Russia. And sure. That's, that's like a 10,000 San Marinos. Um, I've been to about 80 probably. Um, wow. but, but I've spent a lot of my adult life on the road, um, right. 
Yeah. So you got you got stopped like all of us did uh, by this pandemic. And uh, maybe I'm uh, assuming too much, but I think you learned a little bit about the good things that can come when you stay home. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I met my wife about two months into the pandemic on, on a dating app, you know, uh, <laughs> in the middle of the prairie. And the, and the funny thing is, is that had the pandemic not happened, my wife and I probably would have been all over the world with ever being in the same room because she was supposed to be in Berlin, but the pandemic came, hit and she mm. came home. I was supposed to be in Rome. Pandemic came and I canceled my flight. And so we grew up about 50 miles uh, away from each other in Kansas. Um, and she traveled the world in her own way and I did in my own way. And it's this crazy thing that we never would have met had we not been here together during the pandemic. And she's, you know, it's just, she's my person, you know, she's, yeah. she's a little traveler. She's a, she's an artist herself. Um, we, we just get along so great. And it's just, it's just the dumbest luck in the world. It's a great pandemic story, but after traveling the world for, for ages, I came back to Kansas, like the least touristed place in America and, and, and met the woman I fell in love with. It's great. You met your Bashir, you met your other half. Yeah. Mazel sure. So, so great. Um, yeah. And you guys have been able to do some traveling together, domestic travel. Uh, you've been traveling a lot in Kansas. What has that been like? It's been a lot of fun. And um, I think we're, we're both people who left Kansas, but always, you know, ha maintained a tenderness for Kansas. Kansas. Um, and it's funny, the New York Times just featured the town of Humboldt, Kansas, in, in its roundup of 52 places to look for in 2022. I, I haven't even traveled oh, wow. in Humboldt, Kansas. And so the New York Times alerted me to a, a part of Kansas I should probably go to. Um, but for, when she, for her birthday, I took her on a road trip uh, to Tallgrass Prairie National Monument, and we ate in this great restaurant in Strong City. I can tell you more about those experiences. But for my birthday, she took me on a road trip to Kansa Prairie. And we had Korean food, because I love Korean food, because I used to live in Korea, uh, in Ogden, Kansas, which is near Fort Riley, the military base. And so it was sort of this military, it was obviously a restaurant that catered to a lot of young men, um, because the portions were huge. It was, <laughs> it, was it was sweeter than your average uh, Korean food, knowing Korea mm -hmm. quite well. But um, obviously, the soldiers loved it and, um, and loved eating a lot of it. And so it was really fun to see the the... The proprietress was, was from Busan, which is the same city where I lived in Korea, and this is in Kansas. Mm. And, and the funny thing about when we went to Strong City, we just had these, these great Brussels sprouts in this sort of artisanal bar called Ad Astra. And our, our barmaid was from Zambia. She'd married a wow. people volunteer from Kansas. And so we talked about Southern Africa while, while drinking Kansas-made beer and, drinking, and eating Brussels sprouts at the bar. It was, it's been a strangely global experience here in Kansas. Do you find uh, that there are a lot? Because uh, I always think of, of immigrant communities as being in the big cities. And Kansas has a couple of those, but, but you're talking about smaller places. Do you find uh, immigrants wherever you go? Well, you do. And I can talk about Wichita, which is the biggest city in Kansas, is where I grew up. Sure. Um, but there's also immigrants who come to for rural purposes. So the meatpacking plants in Western Kansas have a lot of Burmese and Somali and Cambodian residents. And, you, you know, you don't hear about those communities as much because they're not as adjacent to, you know, big media outlets or something. Um, but yeah, uh, then, you know, the military bases have um, 
like Korean restaurants, Korea has had a military has had military bases there. Sure. And so I think um, any town with a military base probably has immigrants from places like the Philippines or Korea that have had um, military deployments there. So interesting. At, who yeah. come back to the U.S. as spouses or? How? Probably, probably that was the case in the restaurant that I ate in, uh, sometimes as laborers. I know a lot of uh, Filipinos have, have served uh, in the U.S. military and become citizens in the process. But um, it, it's just it's so interesting that um, the, there's a place nearby where I live called Little Sweden. And so Swedish people came here about 150 years ago uh, from a very specific part of Sweden. It's on the border with um, with Norway. And now a lot of the immigrants who come to this part of Kansas, this county, are from Mexico, but a very specific part of, of uh, Mexico, Fresno. Um, hmm. and, and so it's interesting how if you just ask some questions at that restaurant, at that Mexican or Korean restaurant, even in a place as isolated as Kansas, you'll get, you'll get this thing that says, yeah, there's actually a minibus that goes to Fresno, Mexico from Kansas and it, does, it costs a lot less than taking a normal bus there. So it's, it's almost if you, if you see your home landscape as a mystery you haven't quite figured out yet, suddenly you find yourself you know, being served a beer by a person who was born in, in Zambia or yeah. Korea or realizing that the Mexicans who uh, live in the nearest town to where you live aren't just from any old place. They're from a very specific part of Zacatecas, Mexico. So Have you been to that part of Mexico? I haven't, but my sister has been. She teaches in the in the little Sweden, uh, in the old Swedish immigrant town. And huh. when she when she realized that the newer immigrants aren't coming from Sweden, she asked around, and she took her family on a trip to Fresno. It's not really consumer oriented; it's full of migrants, you know, people going huh. back to see their family. And so they were stuck at the border for ten hours. It's not really customer oriented, but hmm. they got to see. In a way, going to Fresno, Mexico, was going to North Central Kansas because they got to see where the, the Mexican immigrants in this part of America come from. Yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting for her. Fascinating. So beyond meeting people from all over the world, what do you see and do in, say, Wichita? I was in Wichita, wow, uh, when I was in my early 20s. I was uh, touring the country in the cast of Les Miserables, mm-hmm. and we, we played uh, Wichita for a couple of weeks. And... Mm-hmm. I had a kind of a strange experience there because we had been doing different, um, uh, we would do fundraisers, mostly for um, AIDS at that time. Uh, but I knew that, that Wichita had been big in the, the fight for uh, reproductive rights. And so I, I uh, foolishly in a certain way, I contacted the local Planned Parenthood and said I would be happy to help put on a fundraiser for them. Got got into trouble with the producer of the show. (laughs) Didn't realize that a cast member can't just do that because it it caused a bit of a ruckus. But I got to meet the most wonderful, uh, fascinating, really outspoken and courageous women. Uh, And they showed me you know, where they lived in Wichita, and I got a feeling for the life there. But I don't think I did anything that a tourist would do. So what would a tourist visiting Wichita do and see? Well, there's a lot of things. It's my hometown, and I'm really fond of it. It's sort of, it's it's not the most glamorous town in America, but I'm just really fond of it. And so they have parts, old industrial parts of Wichita have been in, have been revitalized since the 1990s, like Old Town, 
um, or the Douglas Design District, were basically these places that had sort of gone empty, these buildings that have gone empty, um, now have great restaurants. In fact, mm. um, my wife, who lived in Germany for a while, she sat down at this German restaurant in the in Douglas Design District, and she's like, these are the same tables they have in Germany, right? So a guy who wow. married a, a German woman opened up a German restaurant in Wichita. And so you just have, like, every neighborhood has its own texture. Like, so, uh, like, North Wichita is, is more Latino. They have a, um, and it's very industrial. They, the old Beechner grain elevator was, was painted in this beautiful mural, mural called El Sueño Original, which basically celebrates that part of the city. You know, the, the le- Mexican hmm. laborers who've been a part of the agricultural economy since the, for 100 years are now celebrated by painting a mural on, it's, it's the world's largest uh, single canvas mural because the grain elevators are so big, right? right. So it's basically, um, it's this reminder that, hey, you don't just have to go to the fashionable parts of town. You can go see this grain elevator painting and any, I, I guarantee you the best Mexican food in Wichita is going to be within a three mile radius of that. Right. Right. Um, it's a, it's a neighborhood. And, and this is advice that applies to any town um, in America. You know, you have your, your sort of fashionable, you have your equivalent of Brooklyn neighborhoods with the brew pubs and, and the cool, you know, local restaurants, but find those immigrant neighborhoods. And my gosh, you know, actually, Speaking of like New York, I was in Queens once. There was a restaurant that only had Korean on the menu. I can read Korean. And it was the wow. best Korean food I've had outside of Korea. So the same happens in Wichita where go to a, a neighborhood. It might look industrial and a little run down, but I bet you the people who run the restaurants um, uh, know what they're doing. Um, yeah. And that holds true in a place like Wichita. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you were talking a little bit about Brooklyn. We on, on Fromers, we have a Facebook group called Fromers Roamers, and we had somebody who last summer posted a question saying, I'm thinking of doing a road trip uh, through the United States this summer because I usually go abroad. I can't do it this year. I don't feel comfortable doing it this year, but I'm nervous because I'm going to have New York plates on my car. And uh, I'm worried that people will see that or will hear my Yankee accent and not treat me well because I feel like there's so much divisiveness in this country. Uh, you're living in, in a red state in the middle of Kansas. Well, what would you say to this fellow? I'd say I don't know if I have any empirical evidence of that sort of hostility happening. Hmm. Um, and I think sometimes we forget. It's almost like saying, oh, you're going to Colombia. Uh, are you worried about the cocaine industry? You know, <laughs> you're going, you're going, I mean, there's, you're going to Egypt. Are you worried about terrorism? You know, th- there's certain very flat stereotypes that characterize what places are like. Right. Um, and so I think, I mean, the, the town closest to where I'm standing now has a great art cinema, and you can see it, it's basically whatever's showing at the Angelica on Houston Street in New York is pretty much showing at the art center in Salina, Kansas. And mm-hmm. so I think that there are, we are sort of encouraged by this electoral map thinking to think that it's really super different here than it is in a bluer state, right? Right. Um, and, but I think if you, I mean, not to use too many political metaphors, but if you look at the arrests of the, of the January 6 rioters, they're from all 50 states. They're hmm. mostly from places like New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania wow. and Florida and Texas. They're from big states where it's where it's close to get to, right? Hmm. And so I think it's easy to live in a blue state and forget that there's people who are super conservative there. It's easy to sit to live in a, to think about a red state and think about 
and forget that there's people who are super progressive here. Um, sure. And so there's this reductionist thinking that we sometimes are reminded not to apply to other countries, but we sometimes apply it to our own country. Um, and, it, you know, there's some things, it's just, a, it's a different geophysically part of the country. It's demographically, there are more conservative voters here. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, there's just, there's good food and sites and hikes and, and stuff, just like any other place. And yeah. just, just as the case, if somebody, if somebody in Egypt, you know, is, is a very pious Muslim and talking about things that you're not used to hearing, in a red state, if somebody is talking about their love of Donald Trump or whatever, then that might invite a question. Well, what makes you think that way? You know, just these right. conversations that we don't often have when we're stuck in our Twitter feed. Well, you know, I guess I, I hear what you're saying, and I think you're right. Uh, I had an experience. I, my daughter, who is in a band, in fact, at the end of the of the podcast that I do that plays everywhere, I actually play a song uh, by Melt, her band. Um wow. And uh, she was at the Floyd Festival, which is in the heart of rural Virginia. We went down to hear her and to go to this groovy music festival. I'd never been to one before. Uh, it was so much fun. And we were in a small antique store, just, you know, kind of wandering through a little town. And the proprietor said to my husband and myself, hey, where are y'all from? I said, oh, we're from New York City. And he said, I'm sorry to hear that. And uh -huh. I was stunned. And he kind of went into a litany of things that are wrong with New York, a lot of which had to do with uh, our mayor, Mayor de Blasio. I told him I hated de Blasio, too. Everybody hates de Blasio. <laughs> but uh -huh. uh, it was it took me aback. Nothing happened. It wasn't dangerous in any way. Uh, but it, it was... Um, it, that's the first and only time that's ever happened to me. Uh, mostly I find that wherever I go, people people want to meet strangers. They want to be, be open with them. They, they want to be friendly. Mm. But this this was an exception. It was for me, it was a bit of a shocking exception. So anyway, and it, uh, it must have been fairly recently. That was this summer. That was in uh, summer of uh, 2021. Yeah. Yeah, it was very odd. So. You said you took two major road trips in Kansas. We heard about the restaurants. You're clearly a foodie. But, but you know, I, when I think of Kansas, I think of Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, and I think of flatness. What do you see there? Well, if you're thinking, I mean, there is flatness, especially the western third of the state as you get out towards Colorado. It's, it's the high plains. And it's interesting. My dad is a... And retired high school science teacher. And so he looks, he sees a thousand things where most people just see a flat grassland. Um, hmm. because he knows, he knows what the root systems are like. And he knows that, that that used to be an ocean and there's dinosaur bones under the soil, you know? Wow. Um, and so I think one thing that made me a little bit sharper traveler is having teachers for parents is that I just learned sure. to ask questions rather than pass judgment sometimes. But there's a, region of the state called the, the Flint Hills and the Smoky Hills, which is where Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve is and where Kansa Prairie is, where you hike and it's it's like no other landscape. The hills aren't high, but there's no trees. It's just mm. tall grass and wildflowers uh, and it's beautiful. Um, and I, I hesitate to mention both those places because I like being there and having them myself, but um, they're, not, they're, they're not secrets and they're not easy. They're not hard to get to. 
um, and they're great places to go for a hike. And it's not the kind of place like Montana where you're going to go on a hike for 10 days in the mountains. Sure, you can sure. go on a half-day hike in places like that. Um, or some places there's mountain biking trails. They're building some more city-to-city trails here, specifically hmm. for mountain biking or hiking in the eastern part of the state. And so I think it's just a matter of sort of doing your research, um, asking people you know, at the, at the cafe what's to be done about here if they say something sort of unsettling like this guy in Virginia, then ask yeah. to talk to their niece or their, you know, maybe ask <laughs> Someone a else. person. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and then um, I, also people like to brag, and, and this goes anywhere in mm. the world, they like to brag, especially in sort of underappreciated places like Kansas, they like to talk yeah. about what is exciting about their states. And so that was fun to see Humboldt, Kansas mentioned in the New York Times. Basically, a, some young person had left the town and come back and just what, really wanted to revitalize it, and it's working. Um, in a way that there's now new new gyms and restaurants and and performance spaces and stuff and yeah and they so said think, it was the new Marfa right like that it was a major arts community yes uh, it's probably too soon to call it the new Marfa I need to go there myself but yeah and I think that there's a lot of you know my wife's from a little college town and they have she's an actor and she became an actor because they have a good good theater in that town and so it's it's funny again if you see a place as a mystery. You know, it, it's obvious that there's some, you know, maybe the landscape is not always super interesting, but actually on our road trip out West, we went to a few communities in that very flat part of Kansas. One was um, settled by Quebecois uh, Acadians in the hmm. 1870s. And the other was settled by African-American freedmen in the 1870s. Wow. Um, and uh, there's actually a, there's a national monument in Nicodemus is the town that was settled by African-Americans. And so they, yeah, there was a farming community, an all black farming community in the 1870s in Western Kansas. And so I think sometimes you think, oh, the landscape's boring. Let's see what else is going on here. Well, the, the Sternberg Museum at Fort Hayes State University has all those fossils that you can't see because they're under the soil, right? All those right. dinosaur fish fossils. And then Nicodemus has this wonderful community of like this part of America that just opened up to uncomplicated black settlers in the 1870s. And then this other very super Catholic community that has a cathedral that looks like it could be in Europe because it was settled by Acadians from Canada. And so those are, these are things I learned since I've known my wife, since we've been road trip, tripping West. Um, right. So I think if you see a place that doesn't seem like there's something there, then you can treat it as a mystery and ask the person at the bar or go to this church that seems interesting or find that, follow that brown tourist sign that the U.S., highway system is set up along the, the interstates and pretty soon you're having, you're surprising yourself, which is always a fun option. Yeah. I, I've been seeing that a lot of communities across the U.S. seem to be coming to terms with their history and wanting to bring things that were previously kind of, you know, pushed under the carpet to light. We, we, we focused on Oklahoma when we were choosing the, pl the places to go uh, in 2022, because they have three new museums that are just extraordinary. One of which is a, a, a Native American museum. Uh, Oklahoma was the end of the Trail of Tears. So a lot of tribes or nations uh, ended up there. Um, do you see a lot of Native American culture and history and reservations in Kansas? You do not not as much as Oklahoma, but right. um, there's some Potawatomi. Um, actually, Haskell Indian Nations University is in Lawrence, Kansas, which is the same town as KU University of Kansas. Hmm. Um, 
And so that has sort of been a cultural hub for Native American cultures for a while. And actually, my my physical education coach in junior high school um, had a connection to that because his father was a man named John Levi, who's like second to maybe only Jim Thorpe as far as athletes go. He went down to, to um, I think, Pawhuska, Oklahoma in the 1920s and played a scrimmage against the New York Giants, an all-native team of Kansas <laughs> and Oklahoma. Wow. He played the New York Giants in 1927. Who and won? So, do you know? Uh, um, the Hominy Indians. They, they beat the Giants. And now, wow. I'm actually, I interviewed my coach. Coach is now uh, in his 90s, and I interviewed him for my own podcast. Uh, and so I'm going to drop that episode soon. But his father was this football hero. And now, this was back before football was big business. But he actually, um, so the NFL t- players were sort of barnstorming, and some of them were replacement players. It, they weren't full strength, but the, I think the Hominy Indians won 10 to 6. Thanks to wow. Jim Coach's father's touchdown <laughs> in the fourth quarter. Incredible. Wow. That's really amazing. Is the, is beyond you learning that, is is that written down anywhere? Is it in a museum? Or is it, how does, how does somebody, I mean, you, you were talking, yes, about reading, about talking to people, uh, but what are the monuments like? What are the museums like in terms of Native American culture? Or are they just in their infancy still? I, I would guess that they're underdeveloped because when I was hiking with my, I was went on a long hike with my wife uh, last year and I was saying, well, I'm pretty sure this is where the Pawnee lived, but I'm not sure because I wasn't properly educated. Wichita has a place called the Mid-American All-Indian Center. Mm-hmm. They often host, host powwows and they have a little museum there. Uh, and it's not specific to one specific, uh, you know, tribe or ethnicity, but it's sort of the all Indian center that they have there. Um, and probably like most any state, we are a little bit behind the curve. I'm not surprised that Oklahoma has a good facility and I should go there. Um, but yeah. we do. Just I mean, opened. Of, just, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to write that down. Um, <laughs> I, I, far. Yeah, actually, and that's in Oklahoma City, and Tulsa just opened the Midwood Rising Museum, which is about the horrific race riots that happened there in 1921, when what mm-hmm. what had been a very, very prosperous uh, black neighborhood was raised to the ground. It was turned into rubble with hundreds of people killed, a bit of history that was in uh, that HBO series, um, The Watchmen, I think it's called. Uh, yeah, but it, good for Oklahoma for bringing this all to light again. You know, we need well, to yeah, know our that, past. That was a very a shameful incident. Actually, I think a lot yeah. of the, the kids I grew up with came to Kansas, which is a former free state during that Jim Crow era, that it was just, it was easier to live in the Wichita's of the world than the Tulsa's for that reason. And I'm not hmm. saying that Wichita has its nose clean, but I think it's um, in the 20s for sure. And, and throughout, actually, one of the first successful lunch counter sit-ins happened in Wichita before in Greensboro, North Carolina. Wow. And so, again, I think like if you're a, if you're a traveler with a native indigenous heritage or with African-American heritage, you can find these things. Um, they're not always as high profile as some of the, you know, I don't know, baseball hall of fame type places, but they're out there and more and more things are happening. You know, John Brown spent a lot of time in Kansas. So um, there's some monuments to him out by Osawatomie and Topeka. And stuff. Hmm. Um, Very cool. Yeah. So I, I, we, we'll wrap this up, but uh, looking to the future, uh, should people 
what what's going to be the sign that we should start traveling more widely again? Do you, do you have any insights into this or uh, thoughts? Well, well I, I do. I think that if we wait for a sign, hmm. it's going to be, there's going to be mixed signals and I'm not going yeah. to knock the consumer aspect of travel because everybody needs a nice vacation. But from sure. the vagabonding standpoint, I think that if you really want travel to happen, you'll just pay enough attention that instead of just sort of, you'll, you'll just find ways, oh, well, this place requires a seven day quarantine and, and this kind of inoculation. And then sort of if you do your own research and, 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 and talk to people, you can make it happen because this is not historically unique. Um, you know, hmm. the roaring twenties ha- happened right after the the, the influenza pa- pandemic of the late teens. And sure. If you read a lot of travel literature, like Alexander Kinglake's Eothen from the 1830s, he traveled during a time of plague. I'm not saying hmm. that you should travel during a time of plague and pandemic, but I am saying that it, it is possible, um, and you just have to inform yourself, and that definitely includes health safety. Um, but I think it's just a matter of being being independent and sort of and sort of getting out of the travel industry, which might at times think make you think, oh, well, you need to sequester yourself in this all inclusive resort. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, actually, there are more dynamic places to interact. Um, and be smart. Don't take any don't take any viruses to some place that doesn't have them. Yes. But I think that if you're conscientious about things, you can quietly make travel happen. Maybe not during an Omicron surge like we're talking now, um, right. but in ways that don't require permission for someone who may not even know where you're going, right? So. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, on that hopeful note, uh, yeah. I'm going to thank you. And uh, and thanks to all my listeners. Uh, we will be back uh, next week, probably at 6 p.m. on Thursday. It's looking like that's the time. Uh, thank you so much, Rolf. Good to talk to you, Pauline. Watching cable